Alrighty, good to see everybody. Grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 35. As you're turning there, I'm going to make a couple of pastoral notes. Firstly, um, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, then you know that our own region, uh, an hour and 15 minutes from here in Charlottesville, some very disheartening, if I could say it this way, just as a as a person, as a citizen of our country, sickening, sad incident when, when any race in the world um, holds a rally and claims to be a supreme race. And so, I mean, perhaps you've heard about that. If you haven't, when, we, when the service is over, turn on the news, look at your, your social media. And I, I've got three thoughts uh, about that. Firstly, um, Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says right from the beginning that God created us all in, in his image. And, of course, our, the history of our country is not a great one. Uh, but more than that, there's, there's been uh, various historical moments in our world where sin um, has overcome us. And we've succumbed to this idea that some are more superior than others because of they, the, the way that they look or uh, their lot in life. And, uh, and we've chosen uh, to subject those who, who are less or look differently from us. And uh, the Bible would remind us that God made everybody equal, men and women, uh, various ethnicities. I mean, we're all the, we, we all come from the same strain of, of godness. We're created in his image. And so to, um, to, to think down, to, to talk down, and to treat someone as less, lesser than because of uh, how they look, their background, uh, their socioeconomic status uh, is, is sin. It, it's wrong. And so we have to call sin, sin. Uh, the, the second thing is uh, I, I grew up with, you know, in North Carolina in, the, in the, the 60s. I don't remember a lot of it, but my parents were, you know, just black people in the midst of in the South. Uh, where there's a lot of racial segregation and, and persecution for people of color. And for me in particular, and for those in our congregation who are of color, to have an incident like this that happened in Charlottesville in the last two days happen in the 21st century is, is disheartening. It, it really hurts us. And I hope it would hurt you who are uh, who are, are Caucasian in the room to, to see people that are more like you um, raise up banners and say that we're gonna we want to go back to where we were and I'm, I mean what what is that what is it that we're trying to go back to and so uh, that's why the church is important the, the the church is the one entity that God has created that tears down those barriers uh, Paul would say uh, in Colossians that it's the gospel that tears down the barriers of Jew and Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, uh, male and female. It doesn't matter what color you are or what, what your background is. The, 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 the message of Jesus and him crucified is the only hope that we have for our, our world. And, and my, my message to all of us is if we, the, 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 the people of God, of God aren't speaking into the sin that we see around us, but more importantly, um, just being the church, then our, our, our land has no hope. The world has no hope without the church. And so here's my encouragement. Don't be silent. Um, it, it's not going to be a person of color 
that will speak in protest to people, to, to white supremacists or people who would, who would bash Jews or any other ethnicities. They're not going to listen to us, but they will listen to you that, that, that look like them. That's just the truth. So um, let's be prayerful. This, this is a matter of, of, of not just action, but prayer. This is sin, and, and sometimes sin doesn't come out unless we pray. So let's be prayerful. Um, let's turn to Genesis. Genesis 35, we're going to read the first uh, 15 verses out loud together. And then I'm going to pray, not only for our time together in the Word, but uh, what's going on in Charlottesville as well. Let's pray these out loud together. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to the Bethel, pray with me. I mean, say, uh, read out loud with me. Y'all don't remember this? We haven't done it in a long time. Start over. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears, Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel. Because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him, and Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to thank you for the gathering of your church. Thank you for a beautiful day and a beautiful day to, to be here. What a privilege we have in our country to, to worship, to come together as, as people of various ethnicities and backgrounds and worship uh, without persecution. Uh, we thank you for that privilege. Lord, I thank you for the witness of your church, not only here in this room, but the witness of your church in our own, in our own cities here in the D.C. metro area and around the world. God, as we, um, as we um, respond, react even to the events uh, close to us in our own region in Charlottesville. God, our hearts 
uh, ache for those, uh, for that one person who died, for those who were hurt. Uh, and, and, and surely our Constitution allows us the right to, uh, to assemble and to protest. But God, we, we ache because uh, the, the, the nature of the protest was uh, of one that, that promotes more division than the, the coming together of, of people. And so, God, uh, would you help us to know how to respond? Would you use us, your church, Lord God, to be uh, lights in what we're reminded uh, in our world are, are dark spots all over it? Lord, sin abounds, but your, the, the scriptures tell us that where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. So, God, we call on you, the God of grace, to, to uh, empower us to be not just... Uh, Facebook uh, Nazis, but to, to use us with our words and perhaps even with our actions, Lord God, to, to root out inequity and um, persecution and just outright bigotry when we see it. Lord, help us as a church to be all that you would call us to be, city, uh, a city on a hill, lights that would shine brightly for you. And God, would you in our own congregation bring us together under the banner of the gospel, which tears down all kinds of divisions, especially those uh, where we persecute and, and put down those who don't look like us just because we don't understand them. God, as we turn to your word today, open our eyes and ears that we might again uh, hear you and your gospel, that we might learn lessons of faith and grace through the life of Jacob. And I pray that in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Um, many of us live in the tension of, of knowing the grace of God. We know what God has saved us from, the lives that we've had, the sin that we have committed. More importantly, we know what God has saved us to, life evermore, life eternal with him. But I think most of us would agree there's, there's always residual All of us have residual despite the grace of God operating in our life. What I mean by that, there's leftover reminders of the effect of sin in in all of us. Perhaps you are here today and you are still, despite the grace of God operating in your life, living some of the consequences of your sin. Perhaps there are some physical things that uh, are are prevalent in your life because of past sins, consequences that you're still living out today. And in some cases, those consequences are so dire that they leak out into those who are closest to us, our immediate family members, our spouses, and even our our children. I would go so far as to say sometimes if we allow it, our minds and our emotions can make us question if God's redemption, the very redemption that we gain as we trust in Jesus, really absolves us and our families from the actions of our past. And I start like that because that's what Jacob is in our text as we um, as we come to chapter 35. If you are here with us for the first time, we are concluding a series that we started 11 weeks ago, uh, really as a summer series, looking at the life of, of Jacob. And we call it Lessons of Faith and Grace. And to be, I mean, just truthful, we've learned a lot of lessons over these last few weeks, more than I can uh, recall here to remind you of where we are. But the last time we uh, discussed Jacob here in this setting was two weeks ago, and Jacob had been called of God to leave Padanaran, Mesopotamia, and God told him to go back to where I, you know, I first revealed myself to you at Bethel. And so, under God's command, Jacob did that. 
He met an angel en route. God, he ends up wrestling God overnight. And you can't wrestle God without coming out changed a little bit, right? So, um, so, so God, God heard him. He, he put a, a permanent mark of that encounter on him, like put his hip out of joint. So Jacob was walking with a limp now forever until he died. Uh, God changed his name, uh, which has very significant connotations, not of Jacob's past, but of who God was calling him to be. Uh, from that point on. And then uh, Jacob had to do the very thing that he was regretting. More than just meeting God, he had to meet his brother, Esau. Uh, and, and so Jacob and Esau had had a very harried beginning. Um, from the very beginning, even at the birth, Jacob was grabbing at his brother Esau's heel and really had been his nemesis all these years. And when they parted 20 years prior, Esau had committed himself passionately to one day killing his brother. So fast forward 20 years, Jacob is going back from Mesopotamia under command of God to go back home to where his, his parents were in Canaan. And he has to pass through not just an encounter with God, but meet his brother. And the thing that Jacob assumes is going to happen doesn't. Instead of being met with the the, the fright and the fear and the fury of his brother Esau, he's met with a hug, a kiss on the neck, and the two are reconciled. And so what happens after that is uh, Jacob continues his journey. He continues his journey uh, towards Canaan. He's supposed to end up in Bethel. We learn in chapter 34, the, a, a chapter prior to the one that, uh, that we're looking at today. We're not going to unpack this in any great detail but instead of going to Bethel, guess what Jacob does? He finds a nice spot to live in a place called Shechem. Shechem is right outside of Canaan, and it's, it's populated by the people of Shechem. They are a pagan people known to worship pagan gods, as most pagans do. And although I can't unpack all the details that happen there, there are two primary things that happen that really undoes Jacob's family all over again. The first is they, they do the very thing that God doesn't want them to do. They get too close to the people there. They, the, the people, the pagan people in Shechem become too familiar to this growing tribe of, of Israelites, so much so that um, one of the gentlemen of Shechem uh, ends up loving, liking uh, Jacob's daughter, uh, uh, Dina, Dinah, and rapes her. Jacob does nothing about it. Is completely passive, but the brothers are, are livid. And so two brothers in particular, Simeon and Levi, uh, decide they're going to trick these Shechemites into getting circumcised so that they can partake of the, the other daughters of, of Israel. And at their weakest, most vulnerable point, Simeon and Levi go and they, they execute all the men of Shechem. They, they, they start a, uh, really a, a war between all the inhabitants of Shechem. And that's how chapter 34 ends. And, and I mean, what we should see in that is just, although we see great grace coming in Jacob and God changing his life, sin is not far away from this family. And that's the same thing with us. We can see God operating greatly in our lives. We can see great grace in our lives. But I would tell you, for any of us, sin is, is, is always right next door. All we have to do is avail ourselves of it. All we need is an opportunity. And the opportunity came, and Jacob 
his family is, is coming up, uh, apart here. And that's why these first few words of chapter 35 are, are interesting. They're kind words. They're important words because God is reinitiating once again um, his, his care and his kindness and his love for Jacob. In, the, in verse 1 of 35, we see that God says, I mean, really four words. God said to, to Jacob, and we're reminded that Jacob is human just like you and me. At this point, he's, he's likely thinking that, you know what, I, I've sinned so much that there's no way that God is going to want to have anything to do with me. There's so much going on in my life. I've, done, I've, I've messed up so much that look at all this stuff happening in my family. My, my daughter gets raped. My sons go and, and just ravage the, the whole town, and I'm going to have a, a horde of people coming after me. There's no way that God could ever, that I, he could ever let me have a right relationship with him again. Of course, I'm assuming the text, but that's really where Jacob finds himself uh, as we begin chapter 35. But that's where we see God initiating once again uh, the grace that he extends to Jacob, but he also extends to us. God, in these few words, is rekindling a relationship that he has with Jacob. And that really is the direction of our, of our text today. And I'm calling this Jacob's call to rededication. But more importantly, I think it's, it's Jacob's call to repentance. You know, every so often, hopefully it's often in your life, God calls us to repentance. Very simply, it, God sees us going down a particular path, a particular roadway, a particular direction. We're choosing one lot in life, and God wakes us up and says, hey, if you don't turn around, then the train that's coming your way is going to hit you and, and end your life. And this is that moment for Jacob. And I think the reality is not just for Jacob, but for us as well. Once God has entered in a relationship with us, once he's invaded your life, made promises to you in Christ, he's never going to turn his back on you. Even if you get into something that you, should, that you, you absolutely should not get into. God's not going to leave you nor forsake you. That's the cliche that we say about the Bible, but it's absolutely true. And we see that happening in Jacob's life. Even when you aren't faithful, God remains faithful. Think of all the times that you've denied God. What's the Bible say? That God can't deny himself. And when God doesn't deny himself, it means that he's not going to, he's not going to stop being the loving, forgiving, kind, faithful, gracious God that the Bible portrays him to be. And, and here's, the, here's the important thing in all that. God doesn't do that because of you. It doesn't matter how many good strikes you have on your checkoff chart or how much money you give to the church or how, uh, you know, any of those good superlative things that we might, you know, attribute to ourselves. That's, what, that's not why God chooses not to leave you or forsake you or be kind to you. He does it because of himself, not because of yourself, because of himself, because of who he is. For all of us in this room, the relationship that we have, or if you don't know Jesus, the relationship that you could have with the Lord, it's not based upon what, who you are and what you do. It's based upon who God is and what he offers you, his goodness. It's not that we're worth saving. It's, it's simply because God is loving, because he's gracious, and he's kind. It's like Paul says in Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And that's the first thing that I, uh, first point that I'll draw from our text today, the, the response of repentance. Look at verse 2. In fact, I'm going to start in, in verse 1 again. God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, make an altar there 
to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Verse 2, so Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has me uh, and has been with me wherever I've gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. I think what we see here in in these first few verses of chapter 35 is Jacob and his family uh, offering a right response, uh, the response of of repentance. If you put into perspective the, the, the chaos of chapter 34, okay, a daughter being raped and his sons uh, retaliating, killing all the men of the city, and I mean, just that, I mean, all that's left from after doing that, then God is calling to, to them to rededication, but He's calling them to repentance. We don't know. What the how that would have resolved if they had not done that. They were responding in anger and wrath. Perhaps God would not have had them do that. But what God is calling them to probably just not just for that incident, but for all the things that they had done under Jacob's leadership or lack of leadership for his family. He was calling them to repent. And what I think we see here is is what biblical repentance is supposed to look like. Grace should never produce further sin in our lives. I think that's an, an, another idea of, of what repentance uh, should um, draw out of us. When God, uh, when we meet God and he convicts us, uh, I think the scriptures suggest that we can't stay the same. It's like the encounter that God, that God had with Jacob wrestling him. When, when we encounter God, uh, ultimately that encounter should alter your life, hopefully not, uh, you know, injure you forever, but it's an encounter that should lead to change. And if you're encountering God, if you, if you should ever encounter God in any way, if there's not some uh, lasting change that happens in your life, perhaps you have not responded rightly to the encounter that God is presenting you with. And so there's a couple things that we can find about true repentance uh, right here in this passage. Uh, and it, it's simply that it, it has both a negative and a positive aspect. Here's the negative. We see it in verse two. There's, there's a call to, to, to Jacob and his family to do a few things. Firstly, he tells them to put away their foreign gods. Just put them away. What did Jacob do? He collects them all and he buries them. Secondly, uh, God tells Jacob to purify themselves. There's a call to turn from the, the evilness of their ways and their actions and their thoughts and in their behaviors and to, to be more holy. And then thirdly, there's a call to put off, or as the text says, to change their garments. And I think here's, this, here's what this means. It means they had to give up some stuff. God was calling Jacob and his family to, to give up some things that they had probably come to love and to give up some things that they had come to worship either alongside of or instead of their worship of, of God. And I think that's what repentance does for us. Repentance, that's true repentance, true biblical repentance, isn't repentance unless we're being called to give some stuff up. And this is not just an Old Testament thing. We also see this in the New Testament. James 4, verses 8 through 10, uh, the Apostle James says, Cleanse your hearts, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, 
and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. In context, James is encouraging us to, to put off any kind of thing that's, that's taking you from a, 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 a holy perspective of pursuing God, to put those things as far from yourself as you possibly can. The Apostle Paul uses the same kind of, uh, of terminology in Ephesians 4.22. He's using uh, the, a garment or a clothing uh, terminology when he speaks of the Christian life. He's saying uh, here, both in Colossians 3, he says this as well. He says, now that you've received the grace of Christ, we're supposed to put off our sinful ways. We're supposed to take it off like taking off a dirty garment that's no longer fitting for you. Why? Because you're you're a child of God now. You've been bought with with Jesus and he's washed and cleansed you and he's given you uh, clothing. He's clothed you with his righteousness. Think about it this way. So you don't take a Western world. All right. This, This doesn't work in many parts of the country. In the Western world, most of us don't take a bath or a shower and then put on the same dirty clothes that we had on before we took before we got clean. Right. I mean, I guess you could. Um, I recall like way long time ago when I was a brand new lieutenant in the army, I deployed to Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And they gave I mean, I deployed with two uniforms, two uniforms, two months. Can you I mean, think about that. Just like I had two uniforms for two months. And even though I took a shower once a week, once every two, I, I was, it's just, this is true. Come on, guys. It's a war. Once I, we, were, we were good to take a shower once a week or once every two weeks and to wash, that, wash one of those two uniforms during that time. I mean, yuck. I mean, you think about that. Yuck. This is, this is way before that time. And God is telling Israel, hey, don't come before me in your dirty rags and your dirty, nasty body. Cleanse yourself. Take those dirty clothes off and wash yourself and don't put those dirty clothes back on. It just doesn't make sense. That's what God is telling, telling them. And so the picture here really is a spiritual picture, though. It's, it's uh, the washing and cleansing that comes from Christ makes us fitting to put on new garments. We're, we're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means we have to put off our sinful, our sinful ways. Really, what we've been told here is that you can't keep sin or idols in your life and also at the same time be in right relationship with God. Those two can't coexist. And if you and if you're a person that that's sort of like living that duality, what you're doing is you're faking it. You're 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 looking apart in one realm of your life and then you're being a hellion in the other. Which is hypocritical. Those two aren't supposed to exist. That's why Jacob calls his family to to put off their current way of living. He's calling them to repent, to change their behavior, to turn around, to to think different thoughts. That's actually what repentance is. It's, It's to be going down a train track, to see a train coming and know that if you don't turn around and change your orientation, both your mind and your actions that might, by the Holy Spirit, lead to a heart change, then something fitful is going to happen to you. That train's going to run you over. That's what this call is to. And so Jacob not only calls his family to do these things, but, I mean, he, 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 he buries. He, he's going to make a, a gesture of burying those old habits into the ground. Buries their old habits, their old thoughts, and their old sins. And so repentance is not only uh, negative, 
it has some positive aspects. And we see that mostly in, in verse 3. So verse 3, uh, Jacob calls his family not to just give up, uh, give up negative things. He calls them to put on new practices, to think new thoughts, to start a new walk in obedience to the Lord. And in verse 3, we see that it's, it's arise or get up. He secondly tells them to go to Bethel. There's some significance there in that word. And thirdly, to make an altar, which is uh, uh, basically telling them, go, go worship. Go find an altar and worship and glorify God. And so repentance doesn't just mean stopping some things. What we're told here in the text is repentance is actually doing some new things. And you know that to be true in your life, right? You don't... It, my, my, both of my parents were smokers, and I know it from, from, from living life. You don't just stop smoking and not put, I mean, put something else in its place. A, a lot of people, they stop smoking, what do they do? They chew gum or they eat more. Don't do that, all right? So it's the same thing in a spiritual sense. God is calling us to put off some, some bad habits that lead to sin and to put on uh, some new practices that might uh, help us uh, orient our lives toward Christ. And so really what the text is doing is the text is trying to teach us here something about the Christian life that we don't think of a lot. And, and it's, it's this idea of repentance. I think for most, for most of us here, when we think of repentance, a lot of times what we think of is, is penance. We don't think in terms of God is calling me not just to put off some stuff and put on some stuff and then come and worship and glorify him. We think of, all right, I, I'm, I feel guilty. I feel convicted of my sin. I got to get this weight off of me. I feel like I got to go do something. I'm going to go and um, punish myself. I'm going to think bad of myself. I'm going to take some steps that um, that gets this conviction off of me. I'm going to mire myself in shame. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to make it feel like I'm not convicted and I'm not guilty anymore. But I mean, here's the thing. We don't see this in this text. We don't see God telling uh, Jacob and his family to do any kind of voluntary self-punishment, to do penance for their sin. Biblical, biblical repentance is putting off your sin, but it's getting on with the activity of worshiping God. And that's something that we don't uh, emphasize a lot when we're talking about repenting before God. But that really is God's intention from the very beginning. If you think back to, to Exodus, uh, the, the book where God brings Israel out of slavery in Egypt, uh, of course, that's still another what, 80 to 100 years from where we're reading here in Genesis 35. But uh, when God gives the Ten Commandments, one of the first things he tells them to do is this very idea right here. Look at these words. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And so what's, I mean, what's the emphasis here? God wants them to stop their idolatry and focus on worshiping him. You shall have no other. God wants to be first in our lives. He wants to be the first priority in our worship, and in, in, in the glory that we give to anything. And I think it's the same thing in your life. It's not just Jacob that God is speaking to here. He's speaking to us as well. He wants us to get rid of all those things, I'll call it idolatry, those things that interfere with us in giving God the worth, the glory, the worship that he deserves. 
and to worship him rightly. He's not calling you in repentance to flog yourself, to do penance, to do any kind of, of, of voluntary self-punishment. He's calling you to forget yourself. To quit living like the world revolves around you and get on with worshiping him. And that leads to the second point that I think our, our text brings up. It's the reaction of worship. Look at verse 4. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Verse 5. And as they journeyed, a terror fell from, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people who were with him. And so I think what these verses portray to us is that there's a call to rededication or repentance, but then there's a call to, uh, to react. And the way that God would have them react is, is worship. And we see Jacob rightly bringing his family to uh, the right worship, of God, and specifically, what he does, he gathers up all the all the the little uh, idols and the jewelry that they would have used uh, for idol worship in Shechem. Now, uh, commentators tell us, and uh, archaeological evidence proves that this wasn't just normal old jewelry. It wasn't just like uh, outward adornment that they were wearing. It, it literally were pagan uh, jewelry that was marked or engraved with, with pagan symbols of, of, of various types. There were earrings and amulets and, and talisman engraved with all these pagan symbols. Archaeological digs in parts of Palestine have yielded that the, the earrings in particular were crescent-shaped and they, uh, they were used to celebrate the moon god. And so, I mean, why, is she- why was Shechem such a bad place for Israel? Because it was the land of compromise for them. It's where they got comfortable. It's where they mixed in. I mean, this is prior to even all the things that we read in the promised land of Canaan. It's already happening in, in their life before they even become a nation. And God uh, um, is reprimanding them for that. But here what we see is, is Jacob leading his family uh, in worship. And one of the first things he does is puts away the, the false worship. He puts away the false idols. He collects them up and he buries them. And the interesting thing, the, the, the important thing to note is that as Jacob begins to walk in obedience, guess what happens? God blesses them. Men in the room, men with families, as you walk in obedience to the Lord, guess what? God blesses, God blesses the world through, through men. I'm not being... Uh, I'm not being chauvinist. It's what the Bible, the, the Bible points it out to us. If you're a family, God is going to bless your family through the man. Men, as you walk in obedience to the Lord, you're going to experience the blessing and the protection of God. As Jacob chose to move from Shechem, the place of his compromise, more towards Bethel, the place that God had called him to, what happened? He experienced the blessing and the protection of God. More than that, God calls those nations that were around him to be fearful of him without them doing anything. And that was because God was, God was with them. And here's the, here's the neat thing that we see in Jacob. Not only is, is he moving and doing the very thing that God had told him to do, to do in the beginning, go back to Bethel, don't stop shy at Shechem, but he's leading his family. He's being confident of God's grace. Uh, he seems to, to be determined to lead his household in, ser- in serving the Lord. And I think as he does this, 
God goes before them. God watches over them. He brings terror to all the cities that are around him until they arrive back at Bethel. And then we get to verse 7. Look at verse 7. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And so Jacob begins building an altar. And I mean, this, this seems like in, inconsequential, but this is important here because Jacob is, I mean, he's having a, a moment of, of remembrance. He's thinking, you know what? I don't know what I'm thinking. This God, even before I claimed him to be my God, he's been with me every step of the way. In verse three, he says, this is the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. And so he builds an altar dedicating it to that God. And we see that play out in the rest of the verses here, verses 9 through 15. What does God do? He appears to Jacob, blesses him, reminds him of who he really is. You're you're Israel, no longer Jacob. And God affirms the full gamut of all the promises that he had passed from Abraham, the, the man of promise, all the way through Isaac and ultimately to be fulfilled through Jacob and his legacy. And so Jacob responds rightly by what? By worshiping. He sets up an altar, pours out a drink offering, and he actually pours oil on it. And so all that, okay, all that I just said, I mean, it's good history, right? It's, it's, it's informative in terms of learning about Jacob, but what does that got to do with us? Here, here, here's what it has to do with us. This is the application point. Let me ask this question. Do you worship do you worship? And I'm not asking you if you come to church, because obviously I'm standing in front of you looking at you and we're, we're all, we've all come to church, right? Because there are some good and bad reasons to come to church. And all of us in the room, we, we've done those. There's a lot of reasons that we come to church and all of them aren't necessarily good. Sometimes we come to church because uh, we want to make friends. And it's not, it's not bad to come to church to make friends. I would tell you that's one of the best places to make friends because you'll find like-minded people who believe the same about the same God and the scriptures that you believe. But we shouldn't come to church only to make friends. Sometimes we come to church because our parents made us come to church. And I would tell you that's a good thing. Parents make your kids come to church. But here's the thing. We grow up and it becomes a ritual and tradition and we get into that rut of I'm only going to church because my parents brought me to church and it's the thing that we do. It's good to come to church because your parents told you to come to church, but it's not right for church to be a ritual or a tradition. Some of you parents in the room, you bring your kids to church because you know church is good for them. And that's a good reason to come to church, but that's not the, I mean, there's goodness in that, but it's not necessarily supreme that you bring your kids to church just because it's the good thing to do. Some of us come to church because we like the worship. It's, you, know, we, you know, we're Christians. We like the corporate worship. I would tell you that's one of my favorite parts of, of uh, a corporate gathering is that we get to come, and it's not that the worship team is performing for us, but we get to hear the corporate verse, voices of the people of God singing and uplifting our voices to the Lord in worship. It's just wonderful. You can't, you can't mimic that in your bathroom, right? In the shower. But we shouldn't come to church just because we like to sing or because we like corporate worship. So why do we come to church? We come to church to worship. That's why you should come to church. All those other reasons are okay. 
If that, and, and, and those aren't bad reasons to come to church, but this is why you come to church. Ultimately, you come to church to worship. You come to church because you, I mean, you get to, to, to mingle with the, the, the saints, the, the, all the people who have new names like you do, who've been changed by God. You come to church because of the witness of the gospel that's preached. You come to church to hear the scriptures. You come to church to re-experience the, the full measure of the grace of God, not just for you individually, but to his, his people all gathered together under his name. You come to church to, I mean, to, to, to be encouraged. That's why we come to church. There's so many wrong reasons to come to church, but God is asking, ja- he's, he's, he's telling Jacob, all right, come back to church. That's what Bethel means, the house of God. Really what he's saying is, I want you to come back to the place where I've revealed myself to you. Come back to that place where, um, where my presence was real. And that's what I'm encouraging you with. What, I mean, why do we gather with the church? We gather with the church uh, because we can, we can experience the presence of God, perhaps um, in a way that you can't experience it when you're all by yourself. The church is not a building. It, it's the people of God. And we do experience God when we come together collectively like that. And so back to my original point. I mean, do you worship? I think we see that, I mean, we, this is what we're seeing in Jacob's life. We're seeing a pattern of worship. And here's what we're learning, particularly, that worship is always a response to the grace of God. We, we experience God's great grace, and what do we do? We worship. We respond with worship. We recognize God's grace in all of our life, and we respond with worship. So is, is your worship a response to God's grace in your life? And so what we're seeing here is the right reason to worship. And Jacob is worshiping. He's engaging. He's worshiping for the right reason. Every time the Lord engages him, every time the Lord shows kindness to him, every time that God has rescued him from his sin, every time God has reiterated his promises to him, poured out his grace to him, we see Jacob responding and worshiping. And of course, Jacob isn't doing this perfectly. We don't do this perfectly. But this is the pattern that you and I are called to. And this is my last point, the reminder of God's gospel grace. Verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaran and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his, called his name Israel. Uh, verse 9 and 10 are, I mean, they're, they're just cool verses. They're significant in this text because God's reminding Jacob of his new name, Israel. And if you were here two weeks, I can't get any better than what Saju um, just encouraged us on and what God is doing when he, when he changes someone's name in Scripture. There are a few people that God has actually changed their name. And I think what, you know, just to give you a short rendition of that, what he's doing is, He's he's not necessarily promoting what you've done in the past. He's looking at you and your potential for increased character as you go on in the kingdom of God. He does that for for Jacob here. He'll do it for Paul later. I liken it to, for those of you in the military, you getting a promotion. Think about what the, the person promoting you, the authority might say. He said, you know what, you're getting promoted not necessarily for uh, the good things that you've done in the past. 
You're getting promoted for your um, the potential for increased responsibility at this at this new rank. And that's what God is doing for Jacob here. He's given him he, he's speaking into his uh, potential for increased responsibility in the kingdom of God with a new name, a new name that's going to turn into a nation. But here's what this is. You know, I got a simple mind. And here's what God is really doing, I think. He's meeting Jacob where he is. Because Jacob is in a hard spot. Because think about everything that's happened in Jacob's life. He's had a hill and valley kind of a life. And the last episode of his life has been a valley. His daughter's been raped, which is like, that's just really bad thing in, in any culture, significantly bad in Israel. And his sons have gone and completely wiped out a whole town's worth of men such that Jacob is thinking there's going to be some kind of retaliation. They've taken all the wives and the young people. They've taken all the, all the spoil from that, uh, you know, from that event. And Jacob is not only feeling the lowest for himself, he's thinking, dang, all this stuff is happening. And I'm, resp- I'm the one that's responsible. It's my sin that's caused all this to happen in my kids. And, and here's what God is doing. He's meeting Jacob where he is. He's saying, Jacob, hey, he, did, he doesn't say, you're a manipulator, you're a deceiver, I, you know, this is going to be your lot in life forever. You just messed up, and your family's going to be messed up. You're nothing but trouble. What does he say? You're not Jacob, you're Israel. Those are kind words. Those are words full of love and grace, considering who Jacob was and what he had been through. Because Jacob is thinking, you know what, my... My, my sin has caused so much pain. My particular, I mean, the things that I've done, the decisions I've made in my family and for my family have caused so much sorrow and, and pain that there's nothing I can do to get my family on the right track. And yet God comes and he says, you're no longer Jacob, you're Israel. And then he tells him, arise, go to Bethel. Go back to the place where I met you the first time. I'm going to be right there waiting for you. Great words. So if you're here today and there's something that you've done, there's some sin that you've committed that you're saying to yourself, you know what, there's no way that God's going to meet me after I've done this. If you have done something that's caused great havoc in your own family, something that you think you'll never get out from under, nothing you'll ever outlive, something that set your family in a different, I mean, just a course of direction that you and your own strength can't turn it around. God is saying that same thing to you. I've given you a new name. I don't call you sinner. I call you saint. You're a child of God. I'm adopting you into my family. You're mine. He's saying that to you. And so this is a reminder of God's grace, not just to Jacob. It's a reminder to all of us, especially those of us who've messed up. It's a reminder that God's mercies are new. I mean, can you use some new mercy tomorrow morning? And of course, Jacob does get a new name, but it's not just the new name that's important here. It's Jacob's willingness to worship. I'm coming back to that. And, and God is bringing him back to the gospel all the way here in the, new, in the Old Testament. And so for all of you, when you hear this, this glorious truth about Jacob, you're no longer Jacob, but Israel. I mean, that's the pattern that should be characterizing your life. We're sinners in desperate need of salvation. And God comes to us in the grace of the gospel. His kindness leads us to repentance. Repentance leads us to worship. Worship reminds us again of who we are. 
It reminds you of your identity, not sinner, but saint. You get new names. You get new identities in Christ. And that kindness and grace of God leads you again to repentance, which takes us back into worship. It's this it's this beautiful cycle of the life of faith. You get that? The life of faith that we're in, there's a cycle to it. And if I could use this adjective, I mean, it's a beautiful, glorious cycle. God invades your life and he invades your life by the grace of the gospel. And because of his kindness to you, he's 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 asking you, he's commanding you to put away your idols, put away anything that 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 takes you from fully rightly worshiping him. He's compelling you to purify yourself, to change your garments. He wants you to put off your old man. He's calling you to rise up and go to Bethel. Go to church. But don't just come to, a, I mean, not a physical building. He's calling you to go to a place where perhaps he's revealed himself to you. And if he's never revealed himself to you, go to, a, I mean, cry out to him and maybe he will reveal himself to you by his spirit. Go to a place where you know that you can hear God as he's speaking to you. He's calling you to worship, we, to hear again how God has invaded your life through Jesus. And on it continues. And so I'll conclude, I'll, I'll conclude with this. You know, this is, this is theology. So the, the, the cycle of the life of faith is theology, but more than just theology, I mean, this is, this is the life that you're supposed to live. This, this should be become the reality of your life. God is calling me to repentance. He's calling you to repentance. He's calling all of us to graciously come once again and put away our idols, to put away anything that's keeping you from rightly worshiping him. And I think that's why he gave us these elements. Um, they're, they're reminders. Don't we need reminders in our life of, of, of God and his grace? And so the sacrament of communion is this reminder for the church that God in his grace has come to us, and despite our sin, he's died a death that we deserve to give us the life that we don't deserve. And with his body and his blood, represented by bread and juice, he allows us to come to the table, a table that's representative of, of, of him, and to forget ourselves and to remember what he's done for us. And so in a minute, in a minute as, I, as I pray to close our service, uh, we do invite you, if you're a Christian, to come and partake but more than that, to remember the grace of God that comes to you. Sinner turned saint, citizen in the kingdom of God, a person that God has changed even your name. All right, so I'm actually done. But some of y'all don't actually know what actually happens at the rest of Jacob's life. And we're not going to come back to Jacob. So here's, here's the rest of Jacob's life in like two minutes. So Rachel dies, his wife she dies not before giving birth to the 12th son, Benjamin. Isaac, his father, dies, and Jacob and Esau, who are reconciled, actually bury him at the ripe old age of 180 years. Chaos and deception actually never leave Jacob's family. Isn't that interesting? And, you know, again, I say sin is never far from, from any of us. It, it, sin is one decision away. And so sin doesn't leave their house. Uh, Jacob's brothers are jealous of, of Joseph, the, the favorite son, 
And one day they're out shepherding and they decide to sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. And, uh, and the Bible spends the next 10 chapters in, in Genesis detailing Joseph's life uh, in Egypt. Of course, we have that famous line at the end of Genesis. Uh, Joseph is, is addressing his brothers. He says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. What does Joseph do? He ends up saving his whole family and all of Egypt from a famine that lasts, uh, I think, seven, seven years. In the end, um, Jacob... Uh, ends up moving his whole family uh, at Joseph's request of Pharaoh. They end up living in Goshen, and they end up multiplying until they become more great than, than the people of, of Egypt. And Jacob dies. He's buried with his father and his grandfather. Here's a legacy, and I'll conclude with this. Jacob's sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the original people of God. They're the people that are inheritors of the promise of Abraham, of, of land and blessings and kings. They are the people, the Jewish people, to whom the Messiah is born. That Messiah is Jesus, the one who comes to save not just them, but save us from our sins. And the Bible tells us that if we are in him, if we are in Jesus, in Christ, you are an heir to the same promise given to, to Jacob 4,000 years ago. You are afforded the same favor, but more importantly, you are a recipient of that same grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for our time together today. Thank you for the church. God, may her light shine brightly. Thank you for the lessons of faith and grace through Jacob. God, I pray that these would be more than just a, a nice story in a good book, but God, that we would glean from them and see that, um, that you, uh, you have grace for us too. Uh, that through the ups and downs, the hills and valleys of our life, Lord God, you're calling us not only to faith, but to grace. And through your grace, you're calling us to yourself. Uh, we pray for uh, just our body as we take communion, Lord God. May this be true food, uh, drink, and meat for us to enjoy, uh, enjoy you and your presence. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.